and design service is one of the finest in the area. Brian Hill heads up our kitchen and bath design team. They know what products are available to meet your tastes, needs, and budget. From consultations in the store and at your home, they'll create 3D full-color designs of your proposed project. They'll be with you from concept to completion. Email Brian Hill, spelled with a Y, at brianhillchc at comcast.net. Your new kitchen or bath begins and ends at Country Home Center. Visit us at countryhomecenter.net. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Condy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. Nice uh, warm weather out there again today. We have day three of uh, the official heat wave here, so forecasts are calling for temperatures again into the 90s today. Coming up on the program, uh, Bill Grover here in just a moment is going to really heat things up for us. He's political science professor at St. Michael's College. We're also going to take your phone calls throughout the program. You can reach us at 244 244- 1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. And you can also reach us on our toll-free lines at 877-291-8255. We'll uh, check in with our White House crew to begin our number two. Coming up on the program tomorrow, we'll talk with introvert expert Arnie Kozak. And then on Friday, we'll be uh, joined by what looks like uh, another gubernatorial candidate, Bruce Lisman really giving every indication here that he's going to be throwing his hat into the ring. So we'll chat with him coming up on Friday. Uh, However, there is no politician that is more on fire in the state of Vermont, or or I guess outside the state of Vermont, than Senator Bernie Sanders. We're going to talk about his presidential campaign. Let's give a nice warm Radio Vermont welcome. Bill Grover, as I mentioned, a political science professor at St. Michael's College and an expert fly fisherman to boot. Good morning. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, first question for you. Uh, we talked about Bernie uh, in the past. Are, so are you surprised by where he is today? Um, it's going to sound like a cheap thing to say, but uh, no, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that his message is uh, resonating with the American people. It's not really surprising at all. Okay. I, think it's, I think it surprises the Democratic National Committee hierarchy, but I don't think it surprises me. I know, you know it's probably easy to sort of look back with 2020 hindsight, but why did you feel as though this was going to be successful? Because of what he says, because of his message, because that his message fits the times. And he, there's a lot of um, dissatisfaction and anger out there, and he taps into that really well with substantive policy. So, um, you know, again, like I said, it's a cheap and easy thing to say coming from Vermont, but I think that his message is right for the time. Why now? Um, things have gotten uh, the, the recovery, the so-called recovery since the recession of 2007, 2008, 2009 um, has been a really weak recovery, and people are just tired of big money in politics, and people are tired of having the gap between the rich and the poor get wider, and people are really tired of seeing uh, their purchasing power not being there and seeing uh, not much happening in terms of changing the direction of the country. So I think that, you know, he's he's got a, a message that speaks to that. Does it uh, does it make you pause, though, when you look at the people that are supporting him? They've been pretty well identified as the white liberals. Um, 
Yeah, I think it's a misidentification. I mean, certainly the, the media have been playing this as if he's only been going to you know big cities where you're going to have more of what you called white liberals and college towns and those kinds of things. But I think that his message when he made a, a trip through the South um, last year, or maybe it was even the spring, I forget the exact timing of it, but he did real well in speeches uh, in uh, two or three states down in the South, and he's going to head. I think he's going to head to South Carolina soon. So I think that he's going to appeal to a lot more than just white liberals. In Vermont, he appeals to a lot more than just white liberals. You're not um, you're not appealing just to that kind of a group when you're up in the Northeast Kingdom doing well, too. So I think that he's got much more crossover appeal than, than the national media gives him credit for, I think. How far do you think this can go? Um, well, you know, read the tea leaves. We could, uh, you know, we could have a nice beer and talk about that. I mean, I think he can, I think... All right, I think well, let me, let, me, think, let me go grab one, and then we can talk okay, about it. Okay, it's a little early. It's a little early. Right. No, seriously, I think he's capable of winning. I think the, the Democratic establishment, the Democratic Party establishment, is apoplectic with the thought of him being that successful. But I think that he is... Um, capable of winning. I wrote an, an article that, with my co-author that appeared in June uh, on a, a website, um, Common Dreams, that talked about the wild ride of Bernie Sanders, and um, it, it talks about how, in, in some ways, winning the presidency is not as difficult as actually getting through your 11-week transition period and, and, and standing up to the pressures that you would face during that transition period. I think, I, think he could, I think he could win. Maybe that makes me naive, but I actually think he could win the race. I think that if Hillary Clinton continues to stumble, as she has been doing recently, I think that you know, the Democratic Party establishment probably wants Joe Biden to step in and, and, and be a big challenge. But I think that I actually think he's capable of winning the race. And, and he polls really well head-to-head um, -head against individual Republicans of the 15 or 16 or 17 that are in the race. So he's, I think he could do it, but as, as we say right at the end of that piece that came out in June, that in some ways being elected is the easy part. Governing is more difficult. Why do you say that transition period would be so difficult? What do you mean by that? Well, there's about an 11-week um, 11 transition period between the time of the election and the time you're actually sworn in, and during that, that period, what the president's, uh, president-elects do most importantly is throw out names of people who are going to fill different cabinet level positions of course they're all subject to senate confirmation but during that time there's going to be tremendous pressure on there would be uh, pre tremendous pressure on uh, president Alexanders if there was such a, a person out there tremendous pressure on him to appoint nice comfortable people to these positions and bernie uh, would have to resist that i think he could um, but he would be more easy to resist that pressure to, to appoint mainstream people to kind of mollify the market so that wall street doesn't go belly up for you know nine or ten or eleven weeks he'd be under tremendous pressure to mollify the markets by um, appointing nice comfortable safe people so as, as we say in the article, you know, no, no Ben and Jerry's as co-secretary of labor, no Bill McKibben as head of the interior department. You know, you have to have nice, safe people. And so you have to really resist that, that pressure. I think he could do it. He could resist it. But, um, I mean, obviously this is putting the cart before the horse. But in some ways, I honestly do believe that putting together a winning electoral coalition is not nearly as difficult as um, – it's very difficult, <laughs> but not nearly as difficult as actually uh, standing up to the pressures that would come after that. You mentioned before that you really think it's the message that he has that's resonating. So where, how, where do you factor in Hillary Clinton, the problems she's having? How much of this is that she's diminished and he's gaining, or is it that he's just truly gaining on his own? Oh, I think it's a combination of both. Um, he's, he's truly gaining on his own. I, I was pretty certain. Um, again, this all sounds like, you know, 2020 hindsight, but in... 
March and April and May, I was pretty certain that once he got out there and actually started speaking directly to audiences on a regular, routine basis and getting some coverage in the mainstream media, I was pretty certain that his message was going to sound really good, particularly to not just to the, you know, kind of liberal white voters that you're referring to, but to... um, to uh, working class people and to people of color. And I think that he, uh, now that he's out there every day doing that and going to, you know, increase the arc of his swing down into the south, uh, he's already been all the way out to Seattle, we all know that, um, that he's going to be fine. And they, yeah, certainly Hillary Clinton's difficulties, which are multitudinous, um, play into that too. But uh, I don't think the people that are turning out to hear Bernie uh, are necessarily turning out just because they've been turned off to Hillary. I think he's, they're listening to him. Mm-hmm. Do you really and think- I get my granted. I mean, just excuse me, Mark, but yeah. you know, it's early. I mean, obviously things can change, but I think that right now it's a combination of both. And I wouldn't say that it's. I wouldn't say that it's just you know just because Hillary's been stumbling. Right. You mentioned Joe Biden may um, uh, be asked to come into the rescue. He seems like a particularly weak uh, white knight in shining armor. Um, Joe Biden is a walking malapropism, um, but he does share with. How can I say this? He does share with Bernie and with Donald Trump, and I'm, I'd like to talk about the Bernie and Trump thing if you want to for a second, but Definitely. he does share that kind of um, speak from the heart, speak truthfully, speak even a little crudely sometimes. He does share that kind of every man or every woman um, kind of language that I think appeals to a lot of people. I think he'd be, he'd be delivering a much more conservative message, but I think he does have that, I won't say shoot from the hip, because I don't think Sanders shoots from the hip, but I mean, he's got that kind of every person appeal in the way he speaks that I think is, is attractive to a lot of folks. I'm talking with Bill Grover. He's a political science professor at St. Michael's College. You can join us at 244-1777, toll-free 877-291-8255. Let's talk about the Bernie Trump. I've been fascinated watching columnists trying to make them equivalent. Are, are they? It's interesting. No, they're not. And I think it's really interesting to use the word. I call it false equivalence. It's very, very frustrating. I'm not surprised it's happening as a old journalism major myself and a former reporter. But um, it's this, the way the media are um, framing this, of, I guess you could say this, this early phenomenon, is this what I'm calling false equivalence. And uh, you can see them lining. I mean, the most recent example was Charles Krauthammer the other day, conservative columnist in Washington. But it's not just Krauthammer. It's a whole lot of other folks. And they are, they are kind of saying, oh, you know, Trump is appealing to the angry people and Bernie's appealing to the angry people. And the way that's being framed, the media is setting it up so that, you know, the sensible center should eventually triumph, whether the sensible center happens to be, you know, Jeb Bush on the Republican side or Hillary or, or Joe Biden on the, on the Democratic side. And there is no sensible center, really. I don't think that's... It's they're, they're the two parties, and this is what um, Joe and I say in our book, The Unsustainable Presidency, our recent book, um, that the two parties are very, very similar and have been since the late 1970s um, in terms of the basics of economic policy and the basics of national security policy. Yes, there are some differences. I'm not saying they're absolutely identical, but they're, they're um, mostly in agreement. There's a, a shared consensus. So I really don't see this... This sensible center emerging, and it's not that sensible, and it's not really in the center. The sensible center is no longer anywhere near the center. I mean, Dwight Eisenhower would be a flaming liberal Democrat were he uh, in politics today for the kinds of things he was saying in 1960 and 1961. So I think this this false equivalence is is frustrating, but it is it is um, you know framing the early debate in a certain way, and I think that you know um, Donald Trump, you know, he appeals to. Um, he plays to the angry white male, you know, the base of the GOP party, not the money base, but the kind of political base of the GOP, and with policies that are substantively essentially the same 
as other GOP candidates. And uh, stylistically, he's very much more stringent, stylistically. But substantively, he's really not that different from the others, as you, you see today in the papers. Not surprisingly, that his, that his actual you know, five- or six-page immigration um, mm-hmm. policy proposal looks about the same as the others you know so he's but he plays uh, with his style he plays to that that angry white disaffected voter base but bernie has substantively different ideas than the other democrats do i think and so um i suspect the party establishment is real worried about his popularity hmm. you mean strident not stringent right um, uh, uh, yeah, I meant strident. Yeah, Donald Trump is, comes off very strident, very unhappy with the way things are. He's got his own money, so he's not beholden to, since he is a billionaire, he's not beholden to other billionaires. So he comes off as, yeah, I, I meant strident. He comes off as very, very strident, and I think that has a lot of appeal. Um, but it's mostly uh, sound and fury signifying very, very little. All right, so the difference between, you see, between Trump and Bernie is that one is all personality and no substance. Is that where you're going? Um, I think it's, most of it is that. that they personality, it's, substantively, they are very, very different personality-wise. They, you know, Trump does have that kind of angry guy approach. And, but Bernie's been at this for 25 or 30 years, and he's been very, very consistent with his message. And Trump is just out there, you know, getting a lot of the limelight. The other candidates in the Republican Party have been um, very, very reluctant to attack him. I mean, they, some of them have, but it hasn't worked out. He's... Trump is, um, he's got his own kind of Teflon like President Reagan did. He's got, um, he's almost, you know, I, I called Biden a, a walking malapropism. It doesn't matter that Donald Trump makes mistakes. It doesn't, he doesn't, you know, the word on him is he doesn't really prepare for the debates. He just kind of goes out there and says things. And I'm not saying he doesn't believe those things, but he's not, he's not a thoughtful, uh, policy-oriented person who's going to really take the country in a different direction. Could he win the nomination, Bill? Um... You know, I don't know, Mark. Um, you know as, as well as I do. I, I don't think he can. Everybody's saying they don't. They don't think he can. I, I guess I'm in that group. I don't think he can win the nomination. But you know what? I would not be shocked if he did. I don't think he's going to win it, but I wouldn't be shocked. Mm-hmm. The you- party is. I mean, the, the Republicans have been saying at the national level for you know quite some time, at least a year, if not longer. They have a very very deep bench and. 16 or 17 of them, but I think the deep bench is, is looking, you know, the, the metaphor that people have been using as a kind of clown car thing, and I think it's, um, there are three or four folks in there who could give him a run for his money, which is literally his money, but um, I think Trump could probably win it. I don't think he will, though. If, I had, if I'm not a betting man, if I was a betting man, I would say Trump would not be the nominee. Is there anybody beside Joe Biden that you see coming in on the Democratic side of John Kerry, somebody like I don't, that? I don't buy the John Kerry uh, piece, but, um, I mean, he's obviously there. Al Gore's name has been mentioned, too. Um, I think Biden is, I guess I would say, well-positioned. Um, he's had a lot of tragedy in his life, and he's the death of his son, Bo, is, has uh, come to the foreground, too, recently. I think he's, and again, he, he's got that every every man appeal, I think, that is probably going to help him some if he decides to, to jump into the race. So the interesting thing would be, I've been saying, again, this is another cheap comment that's easy to sound like hindsight, but I've been saying to anybody who would listen since late March, early April, that I think that Hillary Clinton might not even survive to, to make the Iowa caucuses or the New Hampshire primary in, in February because of skeletons and other things that might come up. Come up. And so I think Biden's, he's there. Um, I think he's more credible than Al, Al, Al Gore's, probably not Incredible, I don't think, and John Kerry, I don't think so either. So we'll see. I mean, I don't know. Are there other, are there other white knights out there I'm not even thinking of? Probably, but I think that Biden's the most obvious choice. What about on the Republican side? Is the same thing going to happen where the sort of powers that be, whoever they are, are going to say we've got to come up with some uh, sort of safer choice here? 
I don't know. I mean, they have this so-called deep bench. It doesn't look very deep now, but it's got a lot of people in it. Um, it's. I don't see any other white knights out there uh, who could come in and. and <laughs> I mean, if people want, if the party base and the Republican side, if they want Donald Trump with his, um, you know, strident rhetoric and his kind of let's build a wall and protect ourselves from the Mexicans as if they're the big problem. Um, if, the, if the Republican voters, particularly in the primaries, the base, want Donald Trump, they'll get Donald Trump. I don't think, there's, I don't think the party leaders can you know, stop it, just like I don't think the party leaders can stop Bernie, but I think they'll, they'll do what they can to make sure that other people have a better shot at it. Mm -hmm. Why do you think Jeb Bush seems as though he's doing so poorly? I don't know. I really, I really don't know. I mean, he's uh, the obvious responses that he's been fumbling the question about what he would do were he in uh, George W. Bush's position with Iraq, and he's been mishandling that question for quite some time and saying many different things. But I don't think he's, I don't really know. I really don't know. He's trying to run on his record as Florida governor. Not that impressive. Um, he's raised, a, he's got more money than God. He's raised over $100 million. Um, I, he's a, not a very charismatic speaker. Um, he's trying to be that sensible center kind of guy, but um, when you have somebody like Donald Trump throwing fireballs all the time, he doesn't look that impressive. Yeah. I mean, what do you do if you're another candidate? What would you tell these people to do if you're in the race with Donald Trump? Ignore him or engage or what? Um, I, I, I think when you confront the bully, you probably got to punch him in the nose a little bit, so I probably would take him on. I think it looks really silly that they're being very demure around him right now. Um, I don't know exactly how you would take him on, but you certainly would challenge him, I think. But the problem with that, of course, is that their policies aren't that different. So uh, when, a, when a person's coming at you stylistically in a really different way but saying kind of the same things, the person who makes the most noise is probably going to get the most attention. So it's, it's a tough one. I mean, I'm not a... Uh, this may shock you, but I'm not a paid Republican advisor, so I'm not sure what I would say to them. But, um, you know, they don't have a, a Ronald Reagan figure out there that I can see who would come in and, and be the white knight savior. I don't know what I would say to them, Mark. That's the honest answer. I don't know. Well, I was looking for a suggestion. I wasn't suggesting that there was going to be any money involved in it, in it but some <laughs> yeah. payment or anything. Come on. I mean, you know, I guess one of the obvious things you could say is, um, I mean, Marco Rubio, uh, you know, with his ability several candidates had the ability to speak Spanish and to have that kind of background. And I, I mean, I think that he was supposed to be somebody who could appeal to try to bring in Hispanic voters. And I, I, you know, I guess Carly Fiorina, uh, as a woman, was supposed to be pretty appealing to kind of counteract the Hillary factor in terms of gender. But I don't think that's working so well for her. And she's got this zero-based budgeting thing she's, she's talking about a lot, which is silly, I think, and, um, and, a, and a kind of a, an odd history as a CEO. So I don't, I don't you know, other than the obvious things like, well, get a Hispanic candidate or an African American candidate or a woman. I mean, the obvious things. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't really know what they can do. I mean, Donald Trump is a right now is a juggernaut. I don't think he's going to sustain it over time, but I can't tell you what's going to bring him down. It's not going to be a gaffe though, because he makes gaffes all the time. It's going it, it, to. Maybe he has some horrible skeleton in his closet that's more obvious than just being a, you know, what he is in terms of investor in New York. Mm -hmm. It is amazing though that he just sort of gets away with saying things that other candidates I don't think ever would have in the past. Yeah, it's like a reality TV show that's been noted in the press before, and it's it's as a somebody who studies politics for the last thirty five years. I mean, it's it's. Um, it's a not very flattering sign of the times in the U.S. that a candidate like that could be so appealing. Um, but he is. Uh, yeah. It doesn't say good things about the state of American democracy. It doesn't say good things about the, the, the connection between, you know, 
political power and economic power. It says some really damaging things about that, but it is happening, and I think it's reflective of a really sad period in American history. We, we, I mean, we're a country, we're a country that faces many, many, many challenges, and the idea that that a, kind of a, a bullying, get tough approach is going to get us out of that, as if we haven't had that approach before, is just it's fantasy. But but it's fantasy that's playing very well right now. So why do you think that's happening in our state of democracy here? Because of a whole series of factors that go back to the late 1970s. Oh, it's a long answer. Right? I, my flip answer is read my damn book, Mark. But um, no, I think that it, it goes back to um, uh, the, the transition in American and world politics in the late 1970s, the phenomenon that is not going to get too technical here, but the phenomenon known as neoliberalism and the, uh, and the, uh, the attempt to... Um, um, it, the, the political and economic philosophy that, that that says that markets are always right and that uh, privatization is a good thing and deregulation is a good thing and market fundamentalism becomes really important and free trade and all of that. When you have a, a Democrat like Bill Clinton, you know, essentially re pushing for the repeal of Glass-Steagall and getting the repeal of Glass-Steagall, um, which is a, a really important um, yeah. Thing to have the Democratic Party championing that, to have the Democratic Party championing welfare reform, doing away with Glass Steagall in 1999, shoving NAFTA. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton got all, you know, tens of millions of dollars from organized labor, and they hated NAFTA, and NAFTA got in there anyway. And Clinton just said, "To hell with the people who are who are funding my campaign. I'm going to just keep going, going to keep going for for NAFTA." So the, that what's what's called neoliberalism, which emerged in Great Britain. Uh, under Margaret Thatcher in 1979 and emerged in, under with Ronald Reagan in 1981 in the U.S. It kind of began in the U.S., and I say this in my first book on the presidency, it kind of began in Carter's last 18 to 20 months. So 1979, 1980, the shift began in Britain. It, it kind of uh, infiltrated, not infiltrated, but it kind of became popular with Carter's more conservative advisors, and he really laid the groundwork for the, the, the Reagan revolution of 1981. And so the, so the technical term would be kind of neoliberalism, the Democrats and Republicans are, it, it's a theory of politics and economic practices, it's a worldview, it's a way to kind of cut taxes for the wealthy, vilify government, uh, support free trade, support deregulation. That whole kind of way of thinking about politics and economics really came to consume both parties in a, in a massive challenge to, you know, the economics of the 1930s with, with Keynesian economics. And so um, that neoliberal approach um, has really dominated both parties. And that's why when I, I'm not trying to be... Um, casual when I say that the parties share many of the same points of view when it comes particularly to economic policy but also to national security policy. There are some differences. I'm not saying it's all the same. But they share so many things that the only way you're really going to do something different is to be not like Donald Trump, who just says it louder and you know, let's be let's be more neo. Uh, basically, Donald Trump's message is let's be more neoliberal, let's be more neoliberal. But he shouts it, and Bernie's saying we need to be something different than neoliberal. So it's really um, a different substantive approach with Bernie, and it scares the hell out of the Democratic Party yeah. establishment because they're basically neoliberals. The new, you know, Clinton was the classic new Democrat. You know, the Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC, all that stuff that began to emerge in the 1980s and 90s um, was um, really speaks to how similar the parties are on the basics. I mean, they differ on, you know, gay rights, they differ on gun control, the hot, some hot-button issues, but right. on the really rock-solid substantive issues, they are really not that different. And so Bernie, I think, is. And so that's why I say, that's, that, that's what underlies my argument, that, that if Bernie were to be elected, those neoliberal pressures, those pressures for him to appoint, you know, not, not Elizabeth Warren to be your, 
you know, to have some kind of finance position in the Treasury or something, but to, to appoint, you know, kind of safe, quote-unquote, safe people, Richard that pressure Rubin, would be tremendous. Yeah. Like a Richard Rubin or something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, Richard, Richard Rubin would be one example, but there are, there are lots of others, too. You know, Robert Rubin, Larry Summers, Tim Geithner, Jeffrey Immel, you know, Austin Goolsby, all those guys. I mean, to, to, to the pressure on Bernie to, to appoint, you know, quote-unquote, regular guys and not, and not Bill McKibben, that pressure would be tremendous. Now, he could resist it. He could resist that pressure, but the only way he could, I think, resist that pressure is if he does more than just cobble together a winning electoral coalition. He needs that social movement behind him that will give him the legitimacy to stand up to the pressures that he would face as a president-elect. Now, I know we're putting, as I said before, we're, we're putting the cart before the horse here. This is way down the road, but I think that the more, ex more interesting even than seeing if Bernie can win, and I think he actually can, would be how would he negotiate and, and, and navigate those uh, those 11 weeks before he's actually sworn in? Not to mention if he went before Congress, Bill. No, I know. That, yeah. that's, I mean, that's that's the system of separation of powers that we have that, that, that leads to all kinds of issues, too. But but he actually, in, in the... Um, in his House and Senate career, um, he he did a pretty good job of forging coalitions with kind of oddball coalitions with more liberal members and more conservative members. So I think on, I think Bernie might surprise a lot of folks in this country with his ability to kind of forge interesting and somewhat odd coalitions. Would that necessarily work in Congress? I don't know. I mean, if Barack Obama's painted from day one as a horrible socialist who's from Kenya or something, Bernie will be. Um, you know, he will be painted in, in not very nice colors, too, but um, he's handled that before. Well, no he's, ha he's handled that before here in Vermont. He's handled that on the national level, too. No one's going to question that he was born in this country. Uh, he was right, exactly. <laughs> you can't fake that accent, can you? I don't think you can fake the accent, no. Let me take a call from up here. Dave, good morning. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Professor. Uh, great show. Interesting point. I, I agree with that notion that the two parties are more, way more alike than they are different. That Princeton study that showed that almost 1,800 public policies since the late 80s have featured, have favored special interests at the expense of the public interest is a point that really needs to be reiterated. What I wanted to ask the professor to comment on was that false equivalency game that the mainstream media and a lot of the press engages in is that both sides do it while even Professor Krugman has now acknowledged that one party is revolutionarily militant activist, in fact, has gone off the rails in a, in a traditional American constitutional representative democracy sense, that we have one party that's completely insane, for lack of a better word, and yet the press never acknowledges that, that there's a gaping hole in this whole false equivalence objectivity notion that we've really basically ignored since, you know, that the press has basically ignored since at least 2000. Anyway, what do you think, Professor? I, I, I agree. I think that <laughs> I, I'm not sure exactly what, what the question is. I think the, I think the, the press frames the issue that way as a false equivalence. They're, the press is always looking for controversy. So when, when, when Bernie spoke the other day at, uh, to the press after he did a rally, he talked about how the press is always asking him, you know, what do you think of Hillary? What do you think of Hillary? And Bernie has given exactly the same answer every time he's asked the question. I've known her for 25 years. I like her. I just disagree with her on policies. But the press wants to frame it as a, a personality conflict, personality debate. Um, I guess what I was going to say earlier is kind of putting your question together, Dave, with, with something Mark said earlier. Um, that 
Krugman, you mentioned Paul Krugman, the New York Times columnist and Princeton University um, economics professor. Krugman had a really interesting piece today where he talked about how the Republican Party really has two bases. One is a kind of an angry, uh, you know, kind of angry male um, <clears throat> uh, base that's, that's politically active. Some of them are Tea Party, some of them aren't. And then more of a money base. And I think the money base, the actual billionaire base of the Republican Party is not all that happy with Donald Trump. They see him as kind of scary, like a loose cannon, and that's one of the reasons why Trump can, f can fund his own campaign, and he can kind of get out of that whole money base. The, the money base doesn't really like Donald Trump that much, but, the, but that angry kind of male base does like him a lot. And so really there's actually, as Krugman said today, there's like two bases within the Republican Party, and I, and I think that really Trump's only appealing to one of those bases. He, mm -hmm. he is part of the other base. But the other people in that base, the, the kind of wealthy investors, aren't that crazy about him, I don't think, because they, think they see him as somebody who's really, really, really unpredictable and would be unpredictable for, uh, for financial markets. Last question. Which is kind of ironic, given that he's a financial guy, but I think it's the way it is. What do you think, last question, what do you think Bernie's biggest obstacle is? Well, I mean, the, the obvious answer I would have given you four months ago was money, but I'm not sure that money, money doesn't always win. Uh, you know, Paul Wellstone figured that out <laughs> when he ran against Rudy Boswich for, uh, in 1990 in the Senate race in Minnesota, and Boswich outspent Paul Wellstone 7-1, to one, and Boswich was the incumbent, and Wellstone still beat him. So I'm not convinced that money, it's money. I think that Bernie's had um, two big challenges of late. Um, one is those on the left who say that, you know, corporate power has to be linked to militarism, and Bernie's not drawing that link as sharply as he should. Um, but the Black Lives Matter issue is much more uh, much more important, and I think Bernie has to, uh, you know, white political leaders, and Bernie's not been doing this, but white political leaders cannot tell African Americans what the appropriate form of political protest is. It's very condescending. So he, Bernie's been reaching out like he should to the Black Lives Matters folks um, since, uh, at least since Seattle, and he's got, a, I think, a meeting coming up soon with one of their uh, head leaders but so the issue of what's happened to you know black males in terms of being unarmed and shot by police in ferguson missouri and elsewhere that's a really really important issue african-americans are a, an important part of the democratic party base so i think the biggest challenge bernie has is the one he's he's taking on front and center right now which is is um you know having a a strong consistent coherent response to black lives matters making racism an important issue in the campaign and i think he's going to do that and I think that's a big issue. And, and but money, I'm not. I'm not convinced that lack of money is is going to be that bad. Now, there are four, um, you know, four events coming up in February, and then on March 1st we have, you know, the, the the first Super Tuesday, and that's that's when there's 12 primaries, including the Vermont primary, and uh, you know that's going to be that's when money may become more powerful. Not so much in Iowa and New Hampshire, but. Um, more money, more um, important rather when you have this like Super Tuesday events where there's multiple primaries on one day. That is when money can, maybe the money gap will become more important when that starts to happen. Mm -hmm. Any other observations about the media coverage? I think they're completely correct and I'm glad you used that term. I was searching for that term, that false equivalence that setting up a Bernie and Trump. Anything else you notice about the media coverage? Well, it's 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 predictable and predicted. I mean, it's the way the media has been operating for a long time, given the, the advertising base of the media, and particularly given their notion of what sourcing is. I mean, even NPR, I mean, I, I love Vermont Public Radio, but even NPR is, is, is atrocious when it comes to, say, foreign policy. They get the they get a, a Republican saying bellicose things. They get a Democrat saying somewhat less bellicose things, and then, oh, they've got their base covered because they got a Republican and a Democrat. I mean, that idea that 
that there's not another perspective out there that needs to be articulated. It's just it's just really silly, and it's more than silly. It's destructive. It makes it makes political discourse really difficult. So I think one of the wonderful things about having um, Bernie in the race is that, like when it comes to Black Lives Matters, I mean they've got a candidate who's actually going to listen, and, and I think that's that's really important. But I think that also it's just important to let people know that when you have your Democrat and you have your Republican, um, you don't have the all your ideological bases covered. I mean this uh, Bernie has a, a significantly different perspective, and so you can't you're never you know you don't get Noam Chomsky debating you know Keith Alexander on on U.S. policy in Iraq or something. It's always going to be a Democrat and Republican, and they're microscopically different. They're not fundamentally different when it comes to Iraq or Afghanistan or the use of drones. I mean you know. President Obama has used drones far more vociferously than, yeah. than Bush has. So, you yeah. know, so I think it's, it's, that's, that's where it is. Yeah. Boy, you know, Bernie's message just keep coming back. Every time you mention it, it seems like what he's saying is so threatening to the establishment. I think it is, um, and I understand why he had to run as a Democrat. I think he made the right choice. Running as an independent would have been a, a fool's errand, I think, um, given given the way the, the two-party system is structured at the national level. So I think he's, he's doing a great job, and we'll, you know, we'll see where it goes. Thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Mark, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Bill Grover teaches political science at St. Michael's College up in Colchester. You can uh, join us on the program at 244-1777. And our toll-free line is 877-291-8255. That's when you know that the Hillary Clinton campaign is over, when they start questioning whether or not Bernie Sanders was uh, born in this country. They were actually, just to refresh your memory here, uh, they were actually the first ones to raise the question about Obama's citizenry. And then uh, the other party ran with it uh, as well. But they were really the ones kind of putting the word out there. So, All right. Uh, your thoughts, comments, welcome. We'd uh, love to hear from you at 244-1777. That's our local number. Toll-free 877-291-8255. A moment of your time for our friends at Jameson Insurance. If you're looking for a great family-run insurance company, one where you will get that hometown touch and great coverage as well. Give the folks at Jameson Insurance a call today. Maybe you uh, don't need insurance today, but keep the Jameson name in the back of your mind when you do. Maybe you're going to purchase a used car coming up. Maybe, uh, well, maybe you're going to buy a boat here right at the end of the season, try to get one of those great deals. Maybe you have some other valuable items in your home that you have not quite gotten insured yet. Why not uh, make that call today, and then you can button that up and take care of it. 4962080 is the phone number for Jameson Insurance. They would be happy to review the policies you currently have in place. And if you own a business, John Jameson extending that offer uh, for uh, the opportunity for you to have him come to your place of business and do that review right there on site. That means you don't have to really you know, drive anywhere or do anything. You don't even have to be there when John is looking through this stuff. So, and uh, yes, there is insurance, uh, agent, client confidentiality. So, never have to worry about that. Call the folks at Jamison Insurance today at 496-2080. And you can get a lot more information about them online. And the phone numbers for their Waterbury and Richmond offices, 
at jamesoninsurance.com. We'll take a quick break back after this. Ted, it's hot, real hot, and humid too. I mean, it's my drool dries before it hits the ground hot. Seriously, dude, I don't know if it could get any hotter. And the humidity, I mean, geez, I leave a puddle every time I lay down. Well, Guinness, that's a little more information than I needed to know. But I know for a fact that at One Stop Country Pet Supply, the deals are hotter than the temperature outside. I mean, they have a lot of great merchandise on sale this month at scorching hot prices. I know. There's something for every pet. In-stock dog beds are 25% off. Puggle Hound's dog toys are 50% off. And you can get a free JW dog toy with the purchase of any bag of dog food. My mom saved $3 on a Comcast stick toy. And she found me a new burlap crinkle tunnel for just $9.99. There are too many to mention in this ad, so this is just a sample of the hotter-than-usual deals this month at one.